Welcome to Hope for the Heart. I'm glad that uh, I'm here today. I hope that you're glad that you're here by the time you finish this message. Uh, we're going through the book of Revelation. If you've been following along, you know we're doing a verse-by-verse study. We're in the seven churches of Asia Minor, which puts us in uh, chapter 3. And I'm uh, almost to the end. I'm on the church number 6. And I'll be reading today concerning this uh, church of uh, Philadelphia. And uh, that is a very exciting passage. So I want to give you the context where we are so that you can uh, uh, have this in your mind as we begin the exposition of it. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, the Word of God reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them to come bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one takes your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has ear has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a lot in here, and I want to begin to unpack this as we uh, continue. We know that the John is on the Isle of Patmos, and there's been some representatives of these churches of Asia Minor come and visit with him, and apparently he has gathered them. Uh, even though he is in exile there, they've come to probably visit with him, and he's distributed copies of the book of Revelation to each of them to take back to their churches. And again, these churches would be these seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And a letter to those churches with the book of Revelation, they began the distribution of the book of Revelation. That actually is how the book of Revelation began to be distributed. Remember, though, this is the end of the first century. So as we've been going through these seven letters, we come today to this church, which is called the Church of Philadelphia. And it's uh, obvious to us that there is something unique about this church as we go through it. We know that it's not possible for any church to be perfect. But it is possible for a church uh, to be genuinely blessed of God. In fact, I would venture to say that every church would hope and believe probably that they are faithful. And uh, in the case of Philadelphia, as I just read, they would like to be designated as a church that has a little, po- that has a little power. Uh, and so we don't know what that means as of yet, but I'll begin to unwrap that in just a few minutes. But this church is, is a unique church, and it's in a unique city. The city of Philadelphia, uh, again, was uh, like all of these other cities. Uh, they're about 30 miles from each other, and it was founded after uh, uh, Attalus, the king of Pergamum, in 189, came to that area. and He was nicknamed Philadelphia because he was known for having a special love for his brother. And that is what the name Philadelphia means. It means the brotherly love. 
and that became the name of the city which he founded. It was uh, rich in agriculture. It was it was uh, near volcanic ash, and that those elements alone made the area just really rich for growing things. And so the city, like many of the a- other ancient cities, stood on a hill along a uh, along valley. And the uh, volcanic ash indicates that there was volcanic action in the area, and probably very frequent, and then also probably earthquakes. And so as we get into this uh, and look at this, uh, this city is like all the other cities. Uh, it is a city that uh, helps spread the, the spread of the, the use of the Greek language, replacing the Lydian language of that day. It pushed the Greek culture backwards, as you could say, into the east and into the orient. It was a city that was originally a trade route like so many of these cities, which means uh, you had to pass through this city uh, to get to wherever you were going. Most likely it was a passageway. It was a city that was originally known as a very trade route of the east. It was an imperial road, uh, an imperial road uh, stop in the first century A.D., and it was, uh, uh, it was known for that. So we're told in A.D. 70, A.D. 17, before this letter, remember this letter is written toward the end of the century, so many years before, around 80 to 85 years before, a great earthquake destroyed seven cities in that area, uh, 12 cities in that area, and Sardis, Philadelphia were, were among those cities. Again, in, in 60 AD, an earthquake destroyed Laodicea, which will be what we look at next week. And so there were so, a lot of disturbance in there, but this city had begun to grow back, and uh, and then this church was formed from believers that were in the area. And again, we don't know anything much more about that city. Uh, we don't know much about the church. It's one of those churches founded that we read in Acts chapter 19, became because of the gospel, extended out from the city of Ephesus. Uh, Philadelphia was founded a few years after John wrote the Revelation at the end of the first century. The uh, Different one of the church fathers were said, as we know little about them. We, we just read in certain places that they went past, or they passed through the city of Philadelphia. So this letter begins with a messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? This is a representative from that church that will carry the, back the book of Revelation, in particular this, this letter. So to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, right? Uh, here is the author, and he does, in each case, he introduces himself. Here, his introduction is basically, as you look at verse 7, this is his introduction to who he is. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. This is what he is saying. And, you know, you know John was commanded to write in chapter 1 all that he is going to say. This is the description of the author and it is the first description that's not actually coming from the vision of chapter 1. But the author describes himself in four different ways. And I just want to look at these briefly because, as you know, we don't have a lot of time. But first thing it says is, He who is holy, in verse 7, this refers to none other than God himself. This can refer to no other God because he is the one true holy God. And this relates back to probably Isaiah chapter 6 that declared that Christ is a holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. And John chapter 6, the disciples say he is the holy one of God, consistent with Mark chapter 1, where the demons even ascribe to him, Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the holy one of God. And so we know it's consistent with the New Testament and all of the Old Testament. 
And then the second way he designates himself, after he says, he who is holy, it says, who is true. He's not only the Holy One. He, again, is an Old Testament kind of a designation. He is also the one who is true, the true one. In Revelation 6.10, we read this. O Lord, holy and true, we find it again. Again, this is God. Two magnificent attributes of his absolute character of this true, of this author, Jesus Christ. He says that he is, he speaks of his holiness and this truth. He is holy, he is true. The word for true here is not the typical word means which means a true statement. It is the word which means authentic, genuine, or real, as opposed to false or fake. In other words, he is the true God. He's not a false one. And Jesus is God. He is the holy, genuine God in person. He is perfect in righteousness. He is true in his character and all that it says about him. And again, this is a very unusual way <clears throat> to designate himself instead of just saying who he is. He designates himself by his attributes. Uh, he is true. His truth is absolute standard against all other truth is measured, every lie, and it all falls short. And then there's the third way he designates himself in verse 7, the key of David. He is known as the one who has the key of David. He is called the root of David a couple of times in the book of Revelation, and here he possesses the key of David. To say that he's the root of David means that he is the Christ, he's Christ in God. He is the source of David. David calls him Lord, and David identifies him as a son. But here in this verse, it says he has the key of David. Well, what does that mean, he has the key of David? Well, it means that he has full messianic authority in the line of David. It means, basically, he is the Messiah. He possesses the key. The key is the emblem of the authority, the ultimate control, meaning his sovereignty. It means that God is absolutely sovereign. And this would go back to Isaiah chapter 22 if you want to read that. But here he is speaking. Jesus Christ then is the Holy One, the True One, the One who has access to all the treasures of heaven and who pours them out according to His sovereign will to whomever He chooses. What an amazing statement that actually is. Sovereign authority to open the riches of heaven. So he writes that He is holy. He still doesn't condemn this church the one who is, who, is, who is true, he still doesn't condemn the church. The one who writes is sovereign and has a heavenly blessings. He's the root of David, has the key of David. And then we get into number four, and that is in verse seven also, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Well, what does that mean? That means that he is the one who decides. Now listen to this. Jesus Christ decides who enters the kingdom. He holds the keys. Back in chapter 1, he had said he had the keys of death in Hades. He has the key to, to death and the grave. So uh, he has the keys to hell. And now it says he has the keys to heaven. This is majesty at its highest possible point. He is the one who said, I am come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he is the one that is speaking here. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one who dispenses all the heavenly blessings, who opens the door of the kingdom and the door of salvation, is his sovereign choice. We may not like to use that word sovereignty, but that's who is being described here. And that is the characteristic. In verse 8, he says to those in Philadelphia, uh, I know your deeds. 
I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. I have, in other words, I have opened the kingdom to you. I've given you access to everything in the kingdom. This is the church now. Now, this is not John saying this. He's not. This is not John giving permission. This is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and He says, "I have put a door, an open door, which no one can shut. I have opened the kingdom to you. I've given you access to everything in the kingdom." Uh, so this letter, coming from the Lord Jesus Christ, as he looks at this church in Philadelphia, has nothing to rebuke. There's nothing to condemn, nothing to chasten them, nothing to warn them about, nothing at all for which they should be threatened with judgment. This is an encouragement to this church. This is where every church which should want to be, that we have nothing that he can list as a, a judgment against us, but that we are like this church encouraging because this wasn't a perfect church it didn't have perfect people in it it didn't have a perfect pastor in it because there are none by the way this was a true church and they were a faithful church and the lord opened the kingdom to them now in verse 8 again we see uh, the commendation is is is, is it goes all the way through verse 10 and i'll kind of break these down instead of reading all of that again to you there's some really rich treasures in these verses verses 8 through 10 here our lord is blessing uh this church one that uh, the kind of blessing that all churches would should desire the lord's desire for his church is actually fulfilled here and again it's not a perfect church and again, nothing escapes the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, his x-ray or supervision. He looks through the churches and he knows. When he says, I know your deeds, in verse 8, he knows. He is an omniscient God who pierces with his eyesight and can see every single thing, even to the very intent or the motivation or the purposes of our own heart. He never says anything specific about the church in Philadelphia. He doesn't discuss any specific issues or qualities. He just generally affirms they are a church that will be blessed. Now again, look at verse 8, and he says to them something that's very interesting. I know your deeds, and I put before you this door. But look at this. He says you have a little power. A little power, a little dunamis. Uh, it, it's best to understand that this is not some kind of a feeble church, but a, a small church. In other words, it's, it's like the church I just left in, in, in first uh, Grace Fellowship Church in Bradenton, Florida. It's a church that's very small. This was a, a, a not a little power, meaning uh, with it, the little power here means they were small and few in number. It was not an issue related to they only have a little power because sin is limiting them or that the Holy Spirit is not in full force there. No, that's not what he's talking about here. This is consistent with what the promises of God designate in his church. This is a church that has a little power, and it's, again, it's like a grain of mustard seed. It can move mountains. Spiritual power was flowing in that small church. That means that there were true worshipers, true lovers of Christ. They were holding to the truth, and they were obedient to it. And so he says, you have a little power, and have, have uh, kept... Uh, and you have kept my word, have obeyed my word. They were bound to the scriptures. And this is the mark of a true believer. If you're mine, you obey me. This is really what he's saying. Again, this is a good word for a church. This is a word that, again, every church should want. Uh, John affirms that in, in, in the first epistle of First John. 
This is the acid test of a true Christian. A true Christian obeys his word. And then he says, and you have not denied my name, meaning there were probably opportunities and pressures to deny the name, and he had they had not denied his name. And so we look at this, and here's a church characterized by power, obedience, loyalty, uh, endurance, or perseverance. Uh, they were sustaining uh, their commitment. They have kept his word. Verse 10, my perseverance, again, it's going to say, uh, and again, this indicates that there was persecution in that area like in all of that region. <clears throat> the Lord told them they were going to be hated by the world in John chapter 15. They were going to be persecuted, mistreated. And so we see that actually coming true here. But also in verse 8, Philadelphia, because of its power and its obedience and loyalty, uh, was given some amazing privileges. And those privileges, uh, from the sort of... Uh, uh, look at this generally would be have come to what we call a, a a commitment. He goes back to verse 8. The divine commitment starts with, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. I'm giving you full access to the kingdom. No one can alter that. I'm giving you an open door to the kingdom. And this actually, is what I think this means is the open door has overtones of the gospel opportunity. He's giving them the gospel witness, gospel preaching, evangelistic preaching, and an open door, by the way, is, uh, is an image that Paul really began to develop for freedom and proclamation of the gospel. And so I think what he says here is this little church has an open door, and those passing through that town on that trade route, living in that town, were introduced to, some of them ushered right through those doors into the kingdom. In other words, people were being saved in this church. That's really what I think it's talking about. Those that passed through were coming to know the Lord. But then look at verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet to know that I have loved you. Well, what in the world does this mean? I will cause them to come and bow down. Well, apparently in that town where there was a Jewish population, uh, very large, who occupied, was, this place was occupied by Jews who said they were Jews but are not. Well, what does that mean they're not Jews? Well, does that mean they weren't Jewish? No. Does that mean they were claiming uh, ethnicity and it, was, it wasn't true? No. It's really a language that reminds us of what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. In chapter 2, he makes it very clear. He who is not a Jew, in verse 28 of chapter 2, is one outwardly, nor circumcision, which would outward the flesh. But he is a Jew who, listen to this, is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. In other words, uh, it is one inward. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, the person who is truly born again, who has a, a new heart, and that's what the, the Spirit is saying in, in in Romans chapter two. A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, not outwardly. They say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. And of course, we we saw this in John chapter eight, where the the leaders of Israel, when Jesus called them out and said, "You are of your father, the devil." Well, they were Jews claiming to be Jews, but they were not born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Had they been, their father would have been the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was not. They, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Boy, can you imagine how that must have stirred their, their, them up and angered them. Persecution was coming from the Jews. Remember that. All through the beginning of the church. And through even through the end of the first century had been the beginning of our Lord and the apostles. They say they're Jews, they're not, they lie, they claim it, and then they go against those that are true Jews. 
So here again, persecution at the hands of Jewish people who hate the gospel and are really a synagogue of Satan. But what does it mean in verse 9 when it says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. That's the posture of someone who's been humbled or, or, or the posture of a defeated enemy. That's the posture of salvation. This is precisely what I think this is picturing and what this indicates is, is that these people who are persecuting you, who are coming against you, or your enemies at this time are going to come and be saved. He's going to give that door. They're going to walk right in through that door, and they are going to become children of God. Well, I think it means salvation who came to the Jews in Philadelphia. The door was open to the kingdom there, which means they were preaching the gospel and the Christ and the way of the kingdom, and God graciously saved the persecutors and every Jew that persecuted them. Wow, this is, this is incredible to read this, because God has been saving Jews and Gentiles since the very beginning. Jews will believe, all of Israel will believe, and that's going to come at the latter time toward the end of the tribulation period. But a blessed Gentile church will be used by God, according to Romans, to provoke Israel to jealousy and to salvation. That's really what Romans 11 talks about. They will come to know that I, the Lord, have loved you, the Gentile church. Hard for the Jews to accept, but in reality, this is true. But now I want to get to verse 10 And I want to spend just a little bit of time on this because verse 10 is extraordinary. Because look at what it says. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I will keep you from the hour of testing. Well, what is this talking about? Because we don't know really specifically. We don't know there isn't anything that can point from that time forward in history that has that kind of an appeal to or that kind of look to it. Uh, at the end of the first century, in the beginning of the second, it could be historical illusion and some other things have occurred. There's been natural disasters. There's been a lot of wars, been a lot of persecution. There's been a lot that's going on. But it if it does not refer to an historical event, then they were kept from the devastation of that historical event that would come. You still have to ask, well, what is it? Did it actually really happen, or is it talking about something future? It would come on the whole world, and that may be, from their perspective, the whole world. But what is it really talking about? World is always limited to a context. It came as a kind of test, a kind of judgment to those who dwell on the earth. But look at verse 10. We'll just take it generally. If you are a true believer and you have endured, that is the evidence of true salvation. If you're a true Christian, a true believer, and you have maintained your obedience to the word and given evidence of the new life, I will keep you from the hour of testing. So what is that? Is it something future? I will keep indicates that, something limited, an hour of testing. That's limited. It has a limitation, something designed to be a trial, which is calls it testing, something worldwide. It says the whole world, something inclusive, the whole world, something that is coming on non-Christians. Because look at what it says in verse 10. An hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. 
That actual word there is going to appear many times in the book of Revelation. Those who dwell on the earth is actually a phrase that says earth dwellers. And that always means in the book of Revelation, the unsaved, the unbelievers. So what is this? What is this hour of testing, this limited time of distress that's coming on the entire world to test unbelievers? What is it? It doesn't sound... uh, like a simple present distress in the city of Philadelphia. It doesn't sound like anything that went on at the end of the first century. Uh, What is the Holy Spirit giving us here? I think the Holy Spirit is giving us here, taking us to the end of redemption when a time of severe judgment comes on the earth, a time that the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. It's referring to Daniel's 70th week. It's the last seven years before his return, and it is known as the tribulation period. And it covers Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19, a time that is described in a sequence of sealed judgments, uh, that uh, 21 different judgments, and it is coming. Could this be that time that this passage is referring to? The time of the great tribulation spoken of by Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, and many others. Here, our Lord is not saying then to the church, I will keep you from the hour of testing. The present trouble will be enough. The final test will come on the whole earth will will not be faithful. Uh, In other words, the final test that comes on the whole world will not be for the faithful. Can it mean that we will not go through the final test? This is one of those passages which is used to help us understand what is called a pre-tribulation rapture. Pre-tribulation rapture. We know that that's exactly what this is referring to. We know we'll be kept from the eternal wrath to come. First Thessalonians bears witness of that in chapter 1, verse 10. This is... this. Text is saying to us, you will be kept because of your faithfulness from the temporal wrath which is to come across the whole world and all unbelievers. I don't think we can say that our Lord means because you have obeyed and persevered and endured as a reward, I will throw you into the tribulation. I will make you go through the tribulation? Absolutely not. That doesn't seem to be a blessing. I will keep you from the hour of testing. In other words, I'm going to keep you from it. That's a promised deliverance. They're promised exemption here. The unfaithful churches will experience judgment here and temporal judgment. We saw that in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. The Lord speaks of judgment. But here he is saying, this is coming. There is coming a time on the whole world, and I will keep you from it. This church, the phrase in Greek is ek, or it means out of, it, it. It can't be meaning that I will protect you through it because the believers who live during the time are killed during the tribulation. And if you've read Revelation, you know that. But in John chapter 17, verse 15, there is a use of the same word. The Lord is praying in John chapter 17, verse 15, just to remind you of what he says. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Same phrase, keep them from the evil one. That doesn't mean that he's asking the Father to put us in the hands of the evil one to protect us there. He's praying that the Father keeps us out of the hands of the evil one where the whole world lies. The language here then leads us to believe that those who are part of the faithful church in the end will be kept out of this time of trial. Well, what does that mean? 
This means that he is keeping the true faithful Christians out of the tribulation period. They're not going to be there. And then look at what it says in verse 11 to further substantiate that. I am coming quickly. And that means, that's a, that's a, that, it's a shame here they divided the verse here because that really goes back to verse 10. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. He said to the church in Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 5, I am coming, and I'm coming to remove your lampstand, this, the church of Ephesus, meaning Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, out of its place, unless you repent, I'm coming to shut down the church. He says in chapter 2, verse 16 of Revelation, I'm coming, and I'm coming to make war with the sword of my mouth in the church of Sardis in chapter 3. I will come like a thief, and you will know what hour I'm coming. Or you will not know what hour I'm coming. In the case of those churches, he said, I'm coming to judge you. I'm coming to shut you down if you don't repent. But those are judgments on the churches. But here, he says, you're not going through that final time. I'm coming quickly to take you out. Hold fast what you have so that no one can take your crown. What does that mean? He's not saying hold fast or you're going to lose your salvation. No, hold fast because you don't want to lose your reward. You can forfeit your heavenly uh, treasures that you've been built up, and you can forfeit those and not have those. So here he is giving us again what seems to be a picture of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and, and we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And a lot of other passages support this. This is just one of the many that indicate this. This quickly coming can't be Revelation 19. There's no judgment to it when he comes there. This coming quickly that appears to be a deliverance from the final hour, which means that it comes before that final hour, which means that it comes before the tribulation period starts. This is a, a, a indication that believers, to be faithful, hold on so that no one takes your your crown, hold fast, won't be easy. It's going to be very difficult. And so, I think he's, he's giving this as, a, as an encouragement to the church that he's going to keep them from the hour of testing the great tribulation, or the tribulation period. What a tremendously exciting passage. I heard people all the time say, well, the closer we get to the end, I, I, I'm tending to believe that we really are going to have to go through the tribulation and and we're just going to, it's going to be bad, but we're going to have to go through. I don't believe that. I believe the Lord is going to take us out in the rapture, and I think that's what's coming next. And we're going to have a chance to look at a lot of this as we get closer uh, to, uh, as we move through the book of Revelation. But I want to look at verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast that you not, uh, no one take your crown. We looked at that. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, there's four eternal blessings here. I will make him a temple in, the, in, the, uh, in my God. He will not go out from it anymore. What does that mean? You're going to live in heaven forever. Well, what does that mean? It means permanent, immovable place in heaven. An eternal inheritance is what Peter calls it. What does it mean to be a pillar? Well, a pillar in the great temples were dedicated to people. The pillar would have the name, uh, your name on the wall, known as a family, or that name would be a famous or honored person carved in the temple pillar. Our names will be carved, it says here, in the temple that it will be in heaven. You can find that in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then it says, I will write upon him the name of my God. It's equivalent to the possessional ownership. 
It's just like a stunning thing, isn't it? That there's just going to be a temple in heaven, metamorphically uh, speaking, a pillar in that temple will have your name on it, and God will write his name on you. It's incredible, gracious, stunning mercy. We will be with God forever, forever honored and loved by God. And then you will also have the name of the city of my God. We will have a pillar with our name on it. We are permanent citizens of heaven. God will put his name on us. We belong to him, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, which indicates our everlasting citizenship. Uh, I think, I know I'm talking fast, and I can't even believe all this is coming to me. Forever we are citizens with all the rights and privileges of that city. That's all this is saying. We are going to be in heaven with him. That's the promise. That's the promise that he's giving to us. I'm going to come quickly, remove us, and that will be the beginning of our eternity with him. And he will write my name, my new name, the Lord says, my new name. What could that mean? Well, when... When Jesus died, the Father raised him from the dead and gave him a name that is above every name. And what was the name? It was the name Lord. You see, really what all this is coming to is this is a little church with a little power. Loyalty, they were loyal, they were obedient, they endured, they were very faithful. The Lord threw the doors open and heaven was made accessible through the doors of that church. People came to that church, probably not even understanding why they were coming, and the Lord saved them by coming through those doors. Even those Jews that were persecuting them were coming and bowing down and, and trusting Christ and repenting of their sins. But going even further, those who are faithful will escape the final tribulation that comes on the whole world. And when the Lord comes, it won't be to judge. He will come to reward. That's what we're waiting for. We're not coming today and waiting for judgment. We're waiting on the rapture of the church. And we're waiting for this verse 12 to be true, where we're taken up into heaven, into that new city, that Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, and become citizens of heaven where we will be there honored forever. Man, this is an encouragement for us. This is an encouragement to us. Now look at the last verse again, like all, like several others that have been here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear? Are you able to hear? Has the Lord quickened your heart? As this says, circumcision of the heart. Have you been born again? Do you hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches? You are part of the church. Do you hear what he's saying to you? What a tremendous thing this is. Keep reading the book of Revelation. Keep following along. Next week, we're going to look at the church of Thyatira. This is, a, uh, I mean, the book of Laodicea. This is an amazing church itself. It may take me two weeks to finish it, but I can continue to encourage you. Stay in God's Word. Read God's word and stay faithful to him. Thank you.